Our Father, the Scripture says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. We thank you for your name, and we thank you for what your name represents. You have many names because you have many attributes. The Scripture says in Psalm 119 that the sum of thy word is truth, and the sum of thy character is also truth, and it's goodness, it's holiness, it's your love, it's your wisdom, it's your, it's your unbelievable omnipotence, power that cannot be checked, yet you have power over your power. We don't fear your power in the sense that it will be used in wrong ways because you're holy and because you're good. You have power over your power. You don't uh, fly off the handle. You're a good God. You can be trusted. You're merciful. You're long-suffering. You're full of grace and mercy. When we stop and think about who you are, it calms our hearts. It settles us down. Every father is flawed except you. There are no flaws. What a great truth that is. And through the name of Jesus, we have access into your presence at any time. In the Old Testament, just one day a year, one man could enter into the Holy of Holies. That was it. But now, through the blood of Christ, <clears throat> we have access into your presence, into the Holy of Holies, through what Jesus has done on the cross by shedding his blood for our sins. And now, because of what Jesus has done, we have been justified by faith, and we have peace with you. We fear you, but we're not terrified in the sense of that you can't be trusted. We fear you in the sense that we have tremendous awe. And in scriptures, in the scriptures, whenever anyone would be in your presence, they would just collapse. They'd fall their face. You are great. We are sinners. But you rescue us and you forgive us. That's why the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous shall run into it and be saved. And even before we're made righteous through the blood of Christ, when we hear the gospel, we run to Jesus. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we're saved. And we're born again. And we're renewed to a living hope. And regenerated to a living hope.
So we want to be mindful of these things tonight. We thank you that there is forgiveness with you. We're all sinners, but you take our sin and remove it from us as far as the east is from the west because of what Jesus has done. You bury our sin in the deepest, deepest recesses of the sea. What a truth, what a fact. Instruct us tonight. We always pray for teachable hearts so that we can hear what you would want to say through your scriptures and that we can respond. That's how you lead us. And we want to be easily led by the shepherd. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So tonight we are back at it, and we have been doing a series where we have had um, a couple of concepts that we've been dealing with. One is the concept of um, epitaph. Every man will die, and when you die, there will be a marker of some type your name, your date of birth, your date of death. And then there will be some kind of inscription, perhaps a, a scripture that was meaningful, or perhaps a, uh, a, a short statement that sort of summarizes your life and what you're about. <clears throat> we've, we've made the point that in actuality, the way that we live today, um, what each of us is doing by how we live is... We're writing our own epitaphs. Those who know us best, you can, you can put whatever you want on the marble or on the granite. Sometimes it's accurate, sometimes it's not accurate. Those who know you best, they know you. They know your behavior. They know how you they know how you treat those in your family. They know how you do business. They know how you deal with issues of integrity. They know you. So how we behave is significant. What the Scripture teaches is that all of our behavior comes out of our heart. It's just kind of a brief review. In Matthew 15, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then Jesus also said in Matthew 15 about the heart that out of the heart comes murder and fortifications and all kinds of evil and slander and this and this and this. The problem is the heart. We're sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, Jeremiah 17, the heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? We are, um, we are separated from God, and we have no interest in a relationship with Him. So, what has happened is that He pursues us. We love Him because He first loved us. We don't seek Him. He seeks us. 
And by what Christ did on the cross, he came, Jesus, who is God, laid aside his privileges, Philippians 2, as God, and came to earth, was born of a virgin, became the God-man, lived a sinless life, and went to the cross to pay for our sin. I couldn't pay for my sin. You can't pay for your sin. But Jesus paid it all by his shed blood. When we come to know Christ, we're given new hearts. 2 Corinthians 5, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. Now that's kind of a review of what we've been doing all semester. We're going to continue with that tonight, but from a little different angle. Uh, I want to begin tonight by giving you a syllogism. I, I know you've been hoping that someone would give you one today. And uh, I have kind of a rough-hewn syllogism. Now, what is a syllogism? Uh, a syllogism, according to the great authority Wikipedia, A syllogism is a kind of logical argument that applies deductive reasoning to arrive at a conclusion based on two or more propositions that are asserted to be true. Let me continue. You say, really? Really. This stuff is actually fairly important. Because so much of argumentation, there you, you, it used to be you could take a class called rhetoric. You could take a course in logic. That's all out the window today in the educational system. Because, see, that's based on truth. Those things are based on truth. But we live in, well, we're even postmodernism, but we're even beyond postmodernism. Postmodernism says there is no truth. Postmodernism says there is no absolute truth, and they say it absolutely. And a lot of times you'll be trying to have a reasonable, you know, discourse, conversation with somebody, and you may lay out a fact, but they will not come back with a fact. They'll come back with a accusation. So this stuff is important. So a syllogism is a kind of logical argument that applies deductive reasoning to arrive at a conclusion based on two or more propositions that are asserted to be true. And I'm going to give you one tonight in just a minute. In its earliest form, defined by Aristotle, from the combination of a general statement and a specific statement, a conclusion is deduced. Here's an example, and you'll see what I'm talking about. For example, knowing that all men are mortal, and, here's the second one, and that Socrates is a man, we may conclude that Socrates is mortal. See how that works? Knowing that all men are mortal, and that Socrates is a man, we may conclude that Socrates is mortal. Okay. That's about all of Aristotle you'll ever get from me. <clears throat> I'm going to give you a rough-hewn syllogism tonight, all right? And then we'll go back and break it up. 
Here's the syllogism, rough hewn for our style. Proverbs 4.23 instructs us to guard our hearts so that we can fight the good fight and avoid shipwrecking our faith. Let me do that one more time, and then we'll go back and break it up. Proverbs 4.23 instructs us to guard our hearts so that we can fight the good fight and avoid shipwrecking our faith. Our, our, our key passage has been uh, Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart, for from it flows the springs of life. Uh, the emphasis in, in Proverbs is to concentrate on your heart. And again, to review a little bit, in, in, we're not talking about your physical heart. We're not, talking, um, we're not talking about that. That's part of your body. We're talking about, when the Bible talks about heart, it's talking about mind. It's talking about will. It's talking about emotions. It's talking about attitude. It's talking about conscience. It's everything that's within you. Everything. Okay? So the Bible puts a tremendous emphasis on the heart. Mind, heart, will, emotions. It's the whole package inside of you. Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Um, Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. So the heart is critical. Now, I want to go back to that little three-part syllogism, and I want to break it down. And it's just another way of giving you a three-part outline. So the, the, the first proposition is that we are to guard our hearts. That's right out of Proverbs 4.23. We're to concentrate on our hearts. Why? Because out of it flows the springs of your life. Out of, concentrate on your heart for, because out of your heart comes your behavior, um, your speech, your integrity. Your, um, your marriage vows. Everything comes out of the heart. So the heart is central to Christianity. So we are to, as we've looked at for these many weeks, we are to guard our hearts. Secondly, we are to guard our hearts, and this is where we're going tonight, so that we can fight the good fight. In fact, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Timothy 1.18. It's important we've been looking at guarding your heart because when you guard your heart, you guard your heart from certain things. And you guard your heart to make sure that you are living within the rails that God has given to us as men who are following Christ. In 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul is talking to young Timothy he is giving him some direction as he has the responsibility of, of leading a church, and he's got a lot of weight on his shoulders, and um, it's a battle. And he's probably feeling a little overwhelmed. Timothy was the kind of guy who was 
by temperament, fearful, and uh, Paul was often speaking a word of encouragement to Timothy. By the way, the third one that I mentioned was fight the good fight so that you can avoid shipwrecking your faith. That'll be explained in this passage, 1 Timothy 1.18. This command, I entrust you, Timothy, my son, Paul writes, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Now, you say, what prophecies? We don't know. Paul doesn't tell us what they were. But he knew what they were, Timothy knew what they were, and he was mentioning these prophecies to encourage the young guy, okay? And then he goes on and says this, that by them you may fight the good fight. Now, this is a fight that we've got to fight. That by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. There you go. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Kind of an interesting passage. What's this all about? Hymenaeus and Alexander, we don't know much about these guys. Hymenaeus is mentioned in 2 Timothy. Um, Alexander is not mentioned again, this Alexander. So we don't know a lot about these guys, except that they were involved in the church, some kind of leadership, but they've been handed over to Satan. What does that mean? It means they were the recipients of church discipline and for some specific reasons, were put out of the fellowship. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Okay? If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he re refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he re refuses to listen even to the church, let him, to you, let him be to you as a Gentile a tax collector. In other words, you put them out. It's called church discipline. Um, unfortunately, church discipline is something that most evangelical churches are not comfortable in following. Uh, it's, too, um, it's too messy. It's too uncomfortable. Yet Jesus is head of the church. Now, it's rare that something like this would have to be done publicly, but there are times when it needs to be done publicly, and I've seen it done publicly. The purpose of church discipline is not to embarrass someone. The purpose of church discipline is not to do anything except to restore the brother. Uh, I've seen situations where, and, and this, I've seen situations very, very serious where there have been cases of immorality, um, you know, a lot of conversations going on. I mean, this is something that doesn't happen in 10 minutes. This is something where there's a lot of dialogue and there's, you know, discussion and there's prayer and all this. I, I've seen this where there have been situations where there have been conversations for months. And, uh, and finally, it reached a point where there was going to be a public statement made on a Sunday morning, and on, on a Saturday night, the man who was in sexual sin 
repented. And it turned him. And he was restored. And that was 35 years ago. And the marriage is together and healthy. And, but they loved him enough to tell him the truth. We are to judge those in the church. People often quote what Jesus said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. You're not supposed to judge me, the Bible says. Yeah, but read the rest of it. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. In the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? The principle in Scripture is that among those who follow the name of Christ, we look out for each other. We all get off track now and then, but we love each other enough to say, hey, man, you're going to walk off a cliff, and you don't see it coming. There's a cliff over there. I don't want you to go off the cliff. I'm for you. I'm on your team. But just know this. When you talk to a brother, you look to yourself. That'd be Galatians 6. If you flip over there, you'll see this. Galatians 6, brethren, if any of you is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. When you have to talk to a brother, check out your own heart first. Why would you go talk to your brother if you're doing the same thing? You see? So it's, it's one of restoration, but you say, oh, I don't think, it's, I don't think we, sh we should be doing that in the church. Well, I'll go over to 1 Corinthians 5. You had a situation in 1 Corinthians 5 where you had a man in the church living with his father's wife. 5.1 of 1 Corinthians, it's reported there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. 5. I've, de I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Sort of similar to what he told Timothy in regard to Hymenaeus and Alexander. This would involve church discipline. Um, verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of this world. Oh, I'm not supposed to have any relationships with unbelievers? He said, I'm not saying that at all. Now watch what he goes on and says. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even eat with such a one. Watch this. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? But do you not judge those who are within the church? And most churches would say, no. Because we might get sued. When it's appropriate, hey, hey, when all else fails, read the directions. Hopefully, it'll never get to that third point. But when it does, you have to do it because the church belongs to Jesus. Well, we might get sued. You might get sued. But you do the right thing. So this is what you have going on with Hymenaeus and Alexander. They shipwrecked their faith. Um, This is an interesting situation because 
Paul is telling Timothy, I want you to fight the good fight. Um, Notice the connection. Notice the connection here. In Proverbs, he says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. We're to concentrate on the heart. If you don't concentrate on your heart, you cannot fight the good fight, as I'll show you in a minute. Hymenaeus and Alexander did not guard their hearts, and they did not watch over their hearts. Therefore, they shipwrecked their faith. Now, whenever you talk about something like this, and I remember, I remember reading this in my… I grew up in a church when I was a kid, and the church in which I was raised had a perspective on salvation that, um, you know the hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe? Uh, in, in our denomination, it was like, Jesus paid it 90%, 10% I owe. Um, there was no security. When we didn't understand, those, our leaders did not understand something about eternal life. When does a person receive eternal life? That's a very important question. Um, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, he said, you must be born again. He said, do I enter into my mother's womb a second time? No. Just as we're born physically, we must have a second birth spiritually. Um, When that happens, Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the free gift of God. Now, the question is, when do you get eternal life? You get eternal life when you call on the name of the Lord to be saved, and you turn from your sin, and you turn to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. You receive eternal life when you're born again, when you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. I think what the idea was in the church in which I was raised is that when you die, if you've trusted Christ and lived a pretty good life, you get eternal life. You're carrying around eternal life right now if you know the Lord Jesus. Uh, John chapter 10 Let's go there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In John chapter 10, Jesus made this, He made it real clear. You know, in the Scripture, God calls His people sheep, lambs, a couple hundred times. John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Uh, the, The point is, if you have trusted Christ alone as your only hope for salvation, He died in your place, and you trust in Jesus and not in anything else, you're saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, Ephesians 2.8, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works any man should boast. So you belong to Him. 
He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. Watch this. They follow me. They follow me. The mark, the mark of a Christian man is that he follows Christ. Now, does he follow Christ perfectly? No. Because as we've said before in here, when we come to know Christ and we're born again, we're given new hearts. Old things pass away, all things become new. But I still have a sin nature. Uh, My sin nature used to be dominant in my life. It used to own me. It was Godzilla in my life. I had to do what it said. But when Christ comes in now, through the Holy Spirit, he lives in me. Um, And that sin nature, that Godzilla, is now a frail, old, um, emaciated man in a wheelchair with oxygen tubes. Over the years, this has happened many, many times. A guy will come to me and say, Steve, i got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm not sure I'm saved. I don't think I really know the Lord. I said, why not? He said, because I struggle with sin so much. I just struggle with sin all the time. I mean, all the time I'm struggling with sin, and it's just it's driving me nuts, and I'm not even sure I'm saved. Because if I was saved, why would I be struggling with sin like this? And I struggle with pornography, and I try to get past it, and I'm trying to do all these things, and then I'll, I'll do fine for a while, and then I fall back into it, or I'm drinking, or I'm doing this, and I, well, I, I, I don't think I know the Lord. Romans 7. Uh, you see, in the church in which I was raised, they had altar calls at every service. They had a potluck, they had an altar call. If you, we played church softball, we had an altar call, because Everybody was guilty, and everybody was struggling with sin, and everybody was screwed up. And if Jesus were to come after the softball game, you better be ready. (laughs) It's kind of funny, but, I mean, that was frightening. Where did I say we were going? Thank you. So, in Romans 7, see, this is what happens. And I'm so glad that it's in Scripture and God used Paul to write this. Uh, Look at verse 15. He's talking about the conflict of the two natures. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good, So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. See, it's still in you, even though you're a believer. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I don't do. But I practice the very evil that I don't want. Therefore, I must not be a Christian. No. Because the Apostle Paul's writing this and talking about his own struggle. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. So what I say to guys when they tell me this, and I had to learn this because it was my struggle, I'm I'm sure I'm saved. I mean, the guy says, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. No, you are a Christian. Well, how can you say that? Because I struggle with sin. You're a Christian because you struggle with sin. The guys who aren't Christians, you think they're worried about this? They never think about it. Before you came to know Christ, you never thought about it. You didn't, give a, you didn't give a spit about it. You see, the fact that you're concerned about it is evidence that you're in Christ. But don't stop in Romans 7. You go to Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
That's pretty darn good news. Because Jesus paid it all. Now, here's what's interesting about these guys. Getting back to 1 Timothy 1, 18. Um, we run into these two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And um, they have an epitaph, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And it's right there in verse 20. This is quite an epitaph. This is how these guys are remembered. Uh, among these, uh, among these, uh, those which have re- those who have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now here's the epitaph. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. That's how they're remembered. That's quite an epitaph. Um, Let me give you the story on these guys. These guys were not genuine believers. These guys were false believers. These guys were counterfeit. Um, They were false teachers who claimed to be believers, but they fell away from the faith that they initially said, yes, I believe. And by doing so, they demonstrated that they were not truly uh, converted. 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us because they were not of us in the first place. And the thing is, there will always be false teachers in the church, and there will always be counterfeit leaders in the church. And they look like they're the real thing, but they're not. Matthew 7, towards the end of Matthew 7. Not everybody who looks like a Christian and believes in the, says they believe in the Apostle Creed and the inerrancy of Scripture and all that, that doesn't mean you're a Christian. Uh, Jesus made this real clear. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look like Christians, but they're not Christians. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. It's real simple. You know them by the fruits. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day. He doesn't say a few. He doesn't say a handful. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name did we not cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? He doesn't deny that those things were done. But then he says to those who did those things, he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They were never believers. But they looked like believers. And then at a certain point, their true colors came out. Uh, Judas looked like the real thing. Judas was so trusted, I mean, he handled QuickBooks. He did the treasurer's report. He was a member of the Evangelical Council of Financial Accountability. 
And when they said, Lord, someone's going to betray you, who? I mean, the last guy they thought of was Judas, not Judas. I mean, he's in, he's in the club. He's got a platinum card. I mean, he's got a Bible, and he's got it marked and notes and all kinds of stuff. He was never in. In the Old Testament, Saul. I spent a couple hours yesterday just reading over the life of Saul. Saul was a false believer. Looked like he was in initially. He wasn't in. He never was in. So see, there's a difference. There's a difference between struggling with sin and being concerned about your sin. That's the mark that you're a believer. Because we're going to sin in this world. You see? First John. Let's go over there. Now, we all know 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, that's, a, that's just a wonderful truth that you can't ever forget. You're going to sin as a Christian. He's writing this to Christians. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at the previous verse. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. I find that interesting. He doesn't say if you're struggling with sin. Uh, look, Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It doesn't say if you struggle with sin... And, and do the thing you don't want to do, uh, you make him a liar and his word is not in us. It doesn't say that. It says if you say you have no sin. Isn't that interesting? Believers are going to struggle, but we have an advocate. Jesus is our defense attorney. And Jesus did pay it all, pay, he paid it all on the cross. All of it. When Jesus died on the cross, how many of your sins were future? All of them. 2,000 years ago. So when Jesus died on the cross for my sin and for your sin, he paid it all. And my sins were all future. So as I stand here right now, that means that Jesus has forgiven my past sins, he's forgiven my present sin, and he's already forgiven the sin I haven't committed yet. And in the church in which I was raised, they would say, oh, no, don't say that. People will go out and it'll be licentiousness. And they'll fall in immorality and they will trample on the grace of God. Not if you know him. Because you don't want to do that. Now, can believers sin? Yeah. Can believers be disobedient? Yeah. Can your kids be disobedient? Yeah. So when they are, and you've had it up to here, do you take them down to the orphanage and drop them off and write them out of the will and disown them? No. Well, God's a better father than you are. So what do you do when your kids disobey? You discipline them. What do we do? What does the Lord do for us? Because He loves us when, when we keep falling in sin and we're not listening and we're not responding and we're not teachable. What does He do? He disciplines you. Hebrews 12. Every child of God is disciplined by God. If you've never been disciplined by God, Hebrews 12 says, you're probably not a child of God. Not probably. You're not a child of God. Because those whom He, those whom he loves, He disciplines and to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. We're in process, just as we are with our, our kids and our grandkids. Same thing. 
Hymenaeus and Alexander were fake believers. You've seen ministry leaders, you've seen guys with large outreach ministries, and then it turns out they've got a whole history of immorality going on. And you know, how, how could that happen? Let me show you how that happens. Um, th- this is a sobering passage. Basically, I think about this often because let him who stands take heed lest he fall. I've seen better men than me go down, a lot better men. See, the question is, how do I fight the good fight? Timothy was going to fight the good fight. Paul fought the good fight. But Hymenaeus and Alexander didn't fight the good fight, and they suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. I don't want that, and you don't want it either. So the question is, how do I fight the good fight? If you go back to 1 Timothy 1.18, he'll give you two ways to fight the good fight. He doesn't give us 29 things. We couldn't remember 29 things. He doesn't give me 48 principles. He gives me two. So if you get to 1 Timothy 118, he says that by them you may fight the good fight. Now watch this. Keeping faith and a good conscience. Keeping faith and a good conscience. So, what does it mean to keep faith? This is really important. What does it mean to keep faith? Well, let's ask this question. How do you get faith? In the first place. Romans 10 Before you can keep faith, you have to have faith. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. There is no faith apart from the Word of God. Uh, In in American culture right now, in the political world, you know, these little buzzwords, little, you'll hear this, he's a man of faith. Yeah, he's running for office and, you know, and he's a man of faith. I always want to say, faith in what? Well, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then come out and say it. What are you whispering about? Are you in or are you out? Declare his name. Come on. Well, that might give offense. Offend him. The gospel is offense, an offense. Jesus is an offense. If you're in with Jesus, say you're in with Jesus. I'm a, I'm a man of faith. I'm a man of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let, there you go. Now I know where you stand. Good. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. When it comes to fighting the good fight, I got to keep faith. How do I keep faith? By staying in the Word of God. John 8, 31. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We get faith through the word of God. We keep faith by doing what Jesus said in John 8, 31. If you continue in my word. This is why we do Bible study. This is why you come on Sunday mornings and pastor opens up the Scriptures. This is why 
If you're going to grow in Christ, you're going to develop spiritual disciplines, and you're going to carve out time in your life where you're spending time personally with the Lord. And you develop holy habits. And just as you work out uh, physically, you work out spiritually. The guys I know that are tracking and maturing and growing in Christ make room in their schedules for the Word of God so that they can continue. If you continue in my Word, then you're truly disciples of mine. You just keep, we just keep studying His Word because we keep needing wisdom every day. Does this make sense? So that's a reference to the Bible. And isn't it amazing how the enemy always wants to get me out of the Bible? I get too busy, or I get this, or I get that, or, you know. He'll fight you tooth and nail to keep you out of the Word of God. Because you can't fight the good fight without Scripture. You can't do it. It's impossible. The Bible's your only offensive weapon in spiritual battle, Ephesians 6. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he quoted Scripture. He quoted the Word of God. If he had to do it, we have to do it. Okay. All right. So, how do I fight the good fight? Keeping faith, staying in the Word. And then he says, keeping faith or a good conscience. That's not what he said. The passage says that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. It's not like you choose one out of two. To fight the good fight, you got to do two things. You stay in the Word, and when you stay in the Word, you take the Word seriously, you pray over the Word, you say, Jesus, help me here. I need your help. I, I, I'm weak here. He loves men that will be honest and say, I'm weak here. I need your help. He does. He said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. I, I, Lord, I've I got to have your help. Yeah, well, call on him. Psalm 50, 15, call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you, and you will honor me. He's for you. He'll come to your aid. He'll be there. The guy calls out to him, he's not going to reject you. He's there. He's all over it. It's good to know, isn't it? Keeping faith and, watch this, a good conscience. This is what happens when you see a ministry leader and you've seen them and I've seen them, who are powerful in the Scriptures, that are powerful communicators of the Scriptures, that can quote Scriptures. And then to our shock, something will come out, and we'll find out that there's been a history of immorality. There's been, yeah. And then, and I've seen this personally since I was in college with leaders. Guys that affected me, I've told stories in here about them. Guys that impacted me, I learned from them, I grew from their teaching, and it turned out there's a history of immorality. 
And my help they're so strong in the Scriptures. They know the Scriptures. They know the Scriptures. Yeah, they do. But they didn't keep a good conscience. They laid that aside. And you can't lay it aside. Conscience has to do with the heart. See, they didn't guard their hearts. They didn't guard their conscience. First Timothy 4. In fact, uh, let's do this. Let's go to First Timothy, and we'll get to 4. But let me show you something in, earlier in chapter 1. Kind of interesting how this ties together. First Timothy 1, verse 3. Timothy, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, now watch this, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a... See, those who do that are... <laughs> are not keeping faith because they're not in the Word and they're not teaching the Word accurately. Look at 5. So when they teach, they're teaching confusion. But look at 5, verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some men strained from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand what they are saying are the matters about which they make confident assertions. Hymenaeus and Alexander are in that group. Then he starts talking about fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected, suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I've handed over to Satan, I put out of the church so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. They blaspheme because they're not teaching the, the Word of God. They blaspheme the Word of God and the name of God. Okay. Now I'll go to 1 Timothy 4. So he's already talked about conscience twice. He's talked about keeping a good conscience. Now you get to 1 Timothy 4. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. Well, that's what Hymenaeus and Alexander have done. Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Deceitful spirits take you away from the Word of God and what the Word of God says. You're not keeping faith. You're not in the Word. Okay. And then he goes on and says, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons instead of the doctrines of the Lord Jesus Christ, which in Scripture, now watch this, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. There's the conscience again. Men who forbid marriage and abstain, advocate uh, abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Um, they're perverting grace. They're going back to the law. They're going back to legalism. They're <laughs> they're counterfeit teachers they're teaching counterfeit doctrine 
They're not of Christ. They're deceivers. And what he's saying is, when you see this kind of fruit, you know what's going on. But the root issue here is the conscience. These are men, and in the last days, we're in the last days. How long do the last days last? I don't know. But if you read Matthew 24, and you kind of look around, one of the things Jesus said about the last days, he, he had all these symptoms of the last days. Wars, rumors, wars, da, da, da. Matthew 24, is it 12? He says, and lawlessness will increase. Sanctuary cities. What's a sanctuary city? Lawless. What's open borders? Lawless. It's against the law. Oh, oh, oh Steve, you're getting political. I'm not getting political. I'm just taking the truth of God and applying it. Same-sex marriage. That's lawlessness. School shootings. We, we need more laws. We already got laws. The problem is Lawlessness and the human heart. Lawlessness, Jesus said, will increase. We're there. And it's going to get worse. Once again, I'm just here to encourage you. But that's what Jesus said. Look at this, verse 2. But these false teachers, these false teachers who have fallen away from the faith, it says... They will teach false doctrine by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. I've used this illustration before here, and I'm going to use it tonight because it fits. Conscience. Okay. We've all heard the phrase, let conscience be your guide. Well, before you know Christ, before you come to know Christ, um, the heart is desperately sick and wicked. When we come to know Christ, now we have a new heart. Old things pass away, all things become new. And so we're growing in faith. Um, so what happens, our conscience becomes more aware. Uh, don't let conscience be your guide. Let the Word of God be your guide. That's why in, for instance, let me think about this for a minute. In, in Ephesians 5, here, here's what happens. 5.17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth in, is in Jesus. Now watch this, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, 
which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, your heart. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now watch this. Watch this. This all has to do with conscience. Therefore, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, yet don't sin. Don't let the sin go down in your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Look at 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands, which is good, for that he will have something to share with one who is neat. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know what's interesting about this? This has to do with conscience. So, you know, I've been a shoplifter since I was six years old, but I've come to know Christ and I'm 36 years old. And you walk into a store, and now you've got a nature, a new heart, and you think about, I'm going to lift something. You go, and what will happen? If you start to make a move, conscience is a nerve. And that little, and then that conscience, you're going to get hit. Before, you'd never think twice about it. But now, because you're in Christ, before, you could say anything to your wife, but now you say in some unwholesome word, hits that nerve of conscience. Conscience is a nerve. Okay. Here's the story I've told before. When I was a kid in church years ago on a Sunday night, I was nine or ten years old, he was a missionary from Africa. He had a leprosarium. We would treat these people with this horrible leprosy. It was a film. I, I, I had never seen people who had lost their fingers and their hands and their feet, and their faces were disfigured from leprosy. And as a 19-year-old kid, I came away from that thinking leprosy was a skin disease. Leprosy is not a skin disease. Leprosy is a nerve disease. It's a disease of the nerves. The nerves die. What happens um, in a third-world country. A guy's walking into the village barefoot. He steps on a piece of glass, and he just keeps walking. He doesn't even know he steps on the glass. And it's not until he gets to town, somebody, hey, you're, you're, you're hemorrhaging from your foot. He felt no pain because his nerves are dead. Or you pick up a skillet, and you pull over here, and you're going over here, and the flesh is dropping off your hand, and you don't, you don't know because you can't feel anything. The nerves have died. That's why they get disfigured. What does he say in First, first uh, Timothy 4? Men who are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. It's like you take a hot poker and you jam it on the nerve of conscience and you cauterize it so that you can't feel anything anymore. That's dangerous. That's how you'll see a guy who is so solid in the Scripture and preaching and traveling all over the world and declaring the Word of God, and then you find out, as I did a conference with a guy in Texas and, you know, had a big church, and two, three months later, I don't know, I read in the paper, eight women in the church are bringing charges against him for adultery. Uh, for, yeah, I mean, he slept with them, counseled and had sexual intercourse with every one of them. And a few... Anyway, the guy calls me and wants to meet with me, and, you know, he goes, oh, please, Steve, please, just, and, and I, I, I didn't like the guy to begin with. I thought he was kind of a con man, to be honest with you. I went over and met with him, and 
And his whole thing was, how soon do you think I can get back in ministry? And uh, that was his whole thing. And he just kept talking. He just kept talking. He just kept talking. I'm listening to him. We're sitting at a Sonny Bryant's. And he just keeps talking. And I'm eating my brisket and sipping my tea. And he just keeps talking. And it's all about him. It's all about him. It's all about him. Steve, when do you think I can get restored to ministry? When do you think I can get restored to ministry? And then he finally took a breath. And I said, you know, I think you're asking the wrong question. I think the question you ought to be asking is if you're even saved. Why do you think you're a Christian? Well, I'm, you know, I think it kind of shocked him. What do you mean? I'm a big, a big pastor. I'm on television. You know, I'm, I'm. On that day, I'll say, Lord, I had a big church. I was on TV. I Depart from me. I never knew you. I said, you're asking how soon can you get ministry? You ought to ask if you're saved. Because you see, are you familiar with Matthew 7? There's no fruit. Where's the fruit? You've been sitting here talking to me for 40, 45 minutes? What, almost an hour? All you've talked about is yourself. You've not said one word about the eight women that you violated and that you led into sexual immorality as a pastor, as a shepherd. You've destroyed them. You've destroyed their families. Are they going to trust in Christ now because of your example? They're going to struggle with their faith. You've not said one word about those women or their families. Not one word. The last thing you should be thinking about is getting back into a pulpit. And I will tell you this, I will oppose you getting back. I'm just telling you, mano, mano, you have no business being in a pulpit, ever. There's no repentance. That man needed to know if he was saved. And he was shocked by what I said to him. He, I mean, he was shocked that I'd even bring up such a thing. But 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Uh, once again, there is no remorse over sin. There, there was no remorse. There were no tears. There was no regret. There was no nothing. He was convinced he was saved. The fruit indicated he wasn't. Go back to the guy who struggles with sin and struggles and struggles and what I want to do, I don't do and all that. And I'm not even sure I'm saved. You're saved. Romans 7, because you're struggling and you're asking God for help and you don't want it and you're fighting the good fight and it's hard and it's strenuous and it's exhausting. That's the guy who's saved. 
And to him, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So, we guard our hearts so that we can fight the good fight by keeping in the Word, keeping faith, and the good conscience. And when the Spirit of God flips that nerve of conscience, I respond. Because let me tell you something. If you don't respond and you ignore it, and you ignore it, and you ignore it, and you ignore it. Every time you ignore the promptings of the Spirit of God on your conscience, on that nerve, you put a layer of callousness. And days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months, and months turn into years, and years turn into decades. That's how a guy can sleep with eight women and get up and preach the Word of God and have an altar call. He's seared in his own conscience, is what the branding are. When God prompts your nerve of conscience, handle it. Deal with it. Were you too hard on your daughter? Go talk to her. Confess your sin. Ask her forgiveness. Whatever it was. Were you not straight up on that last tax return? Go make it right. Well, I'm not sure what will happen. You don't need to know what's going to happen. All you need to know is him. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. He'll take care of you. You just do the right thing. He's got you. He's got you. Let's pray. So, Father, we need your help. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you're concerned about us. Uh, you, leave, you, you love us and you understand us. And when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We're so thankful that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Help us to guard our hearts. Help us to fight the good fight. Some of us have been in Scripture, and recently we've been out because the enemy's kind of, he's diverted us. Help us to get back in. And help us to watch the conscience, because when we watch in the conscience, when we're watching it, we're guarding our hearts. And to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And when we do, we walk in peace and we walk in forgiveness. What a wonderful thing. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.